0: Good morning, everybody. My name is Dallas. Thank you for coming here. Just one other update just about the building. We're not ready to move into the building, but this past week we did pass the fire marshal inspection, so yay, yay. That's a good thing just in case you didn't know. Um, for uh, potentially, uh, so we can get a, a temporary occupancy uh, certificate, which also means this week, I think sometime this week, the county has to approve for the building inspection. So you can be praying for that. Um, it's all very exciting. So we'll let you know. Uh, I don't want to say it's a couple of weeks away, but maybe or maybe not. We'll see. Um, every time I say something in my head, it's wrong. So <laughs> we'll let you know. Uh, the other thing is, uh, as you're praying for that, also pray for me about jury duty. I know I whine about it, but It's been like a year. <laughs> yeah, two more weeks on paper in theory, so we'll see. So, yeah, that's all I got to say about that. So we're starting our new series. I'm excited about it. Uh, it's it's going through Ezra Nehemiah. Uh, the main theme is uh, rebuild hope, and that is really what the story is about. Uh, We're going to take our time going through Ezra and Nehemiah up front, just so you know. Ezra and Nehemiah is really just one book, and somewhere along the way, they figured that the scroll was too big and cut it in half, um, basically. Uh, So, this morning, my hope is that we'll just take a broad, huge view of this series and what's going on. It's more of a narrative. Uh, So if you've come here hoping that uh, the applications will be specific to you, maybe, maybe not, but really my hope is to take, I guess, what the Bible scholars call it, a 30,000-foot view of this entire book and series, and this morning it's called Covenant, Captivity, and Return. So with that, we're going to read the first four verses of Ezra, so if you are able to stand for the reading of God's Word, please stand and turn to Ezra 1, 1 through 4. And it reads, In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. And... Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judea to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem, and may be your God with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute towards their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word Thank you, as we've already seen, that you can use a pagan king to do your will. Lord, we're just excited for your word. Thank you that we have the opportunity to come and gather and uh, worship you through music, through fellowship, and through your word, Lord. Pray that through your spirit, you uh, illuminate the scripture to us to uh, reveal to us your truths. Thank you that you are the same God yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forevermore. Lord, I just pray that you prepare our hearts to receive your word. Whatever you want me to say, I say. Whatever you don't, you don't. We thank you and we love you. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So I have to be honest up front. There's a lot of spoiler alerts. So if you're hoping to this to be a, a page turner where you don't know what's going to happen, you can leave now. I'm just kidding. Uh, But really, this story, as you can already tell, as we've already read, uh, a Persian king is fulfilling the prophecy of what God said he was going to do, which is amazing. Um, And as we consider this overview in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, this this is really, again, the big introduction. I format it in a narrative. I'm just telling the story. And really, it's the, it's the story of how God fulfilled what he said he was going to do the second time to rebuild the temple. And we'll talk about that a little bit and what that means. And along the way, we'll have some small application points this morning. But really, the hope this morning is to really grasp the narrative and story form. Just to understand what is going on with some fun tidbits like, like I already mentioned, the fact that Ezra and Nehemiah was once one book. Or one long scroll and they cut it in half. The other thing that I, I found that's frustrating for someone who's very linear, at least in my thinking, is that the story does not go in chronological order. And you're thinking, well, why would anyone do that? And the answer is, I don't know. No. The reason why is because the Old Testament writers, whenever they write wrote, the majority is point by point, literature by literature the theme by theme, and chronological really didn't matter as long as the point came across. Because really at the heart of the story of Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of God's faithfulness. And it's his desire, God's desire for total restoration, not just to the land, but in our hearts and to his people. And it's a story of how the Israelites throughout time has been Uh, experience a new covenant with God over and over again. And this, again, is a covenant to restore the temple. And at this time, the Israelites were thinking, finally, we're going to be free. Finally, the king of kings is going to come. Finally, we're going to be restored. Finally, we get to be the boss. But that's not what happens. And really, they're inspired. The Israelites are inspired because they get to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, by the Babylonians. However, when we go through this, I think what we have to be careful of, at least I know I have to be careful of, I don't know if that's me, but um, what we have to be careful of is, although we are Christians, for those of us who put our trust in Jesus Christ, we live in a post-resurrection, post-Pentecost, we live in the New Covenant, um, we're not excited for a temple, we're not excited that we get to go to the Holy of Holies, Uh, it's real easy for us to think, what's the big deal? But hopefully throughout the next couple months or so, two months or so, what we'll realize is that we're no different than the Israelites. We like what we like. We want what we want. And although some of the themes and situations that we will see is hard to understand. For example, there's a moment where there's a discussion whether or not the Israelites in the land should divorce their pagan wives. Now, for us as Christians, we think divorce, that's bad. Why would anyone want to do that? Or perhaps when the Samaritans, there's an opportunity for the Samaritans to come and say, hey, we'll help build the temple. And they're like, you're Samaritan, gross. Or perhaps when there's this great moment when Nehemiah has his, his brave heart moment where he says, I'm Wallace," just kidding, where he's encouraging the men to grab their swords while they're building the wall But really, at the heart of this, and hopefully, uh, if I do my job correctly, we will see that God's complete desire is always a relationship back to Him. It's always a return to the relationship with God the Father through His Son and the Spirit living through us. And I believe, truly, that is why at the beginning when sin entered in the world, I believe that that's why God put the angel, the cherubim with the flaming sword in front of the garden, So that way, Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity would not, we would not spend our whole time trying to get to a destination. Instead, God wants us to get back to him to restore. Because think of it, when you lose something, what do you want to do? You want to find it, right? I mean, that's a no-brainer. I mean, if your house is burnt down, our neighbor's house burnt down a couple of years ago, and uh, they had an opportunity to move, but they wanted to rebuild, nothing wrong with that. They wanted, we always want to return to what once was. That's why whenever we think of the good old days, we remember them so fondly, even if some of them were bad, because we're always trying to go back to a place where God always wants us to come back to him. And that's why we'll see, hopefully, through this story that although as great as the temple will be, it won't be the end. Also, Ezra and Nehemiah is a story of the Israelites in their second exodus. So, you know, the story of exodus, we'll cover that a little bit as we go through this. Whenever uh, the Israelites were out of Egypt and they were, they were in captivity by the Egyptians and then they were in the wilderness, this is considered a second exodus. The Old Testament writers are, as one commentary put it, modern commentary put it, they're such ninjas, they're so secretly putting in the story over and over again. We'll see also that um, during the exile and God's promise of of the process of bringing them back, and I think it's important to remember that a lot of times restoration, although we are immediately restored to a relationship to God through Jesus Christ, the story of our lives is a process of restoration. I can speak that to my own life. Some of the things that I wish I, some of the things that I used to do before I believed in Christ are still some of the things that I still want to do. I don't know if that's the same for you but it is for me. But it's a process. And yet God has taken some of those things away and some of those things I have to depend on him. That's why when Paul said, asked the Lord several times to remove this thorn and he finally says, your grace is sufficient. It's a process. And there's really three major mega themes or three mega themes with three main characters in the return from the second exile. The first one is the rebuilding of the temple that will be a big theme that we'll go through. The second is a return to worship through scripture and through song. And the third is rebuilding the walls. And really the temple is headed by Zerubbabel. He's the guy that he's the master builder planner to rebuild the temp- temple at least the foundation to begin with. And his name actually means born in Babylon or born in captivity. And if you think about it, a guy wants to rebuild a temple that he never knew, never had the experience of the first temple. He just knows he needs to rebuild it because God called him to do it. Why? Because he was born in Babylon. He was born in captivity. He was born a slave. The second return to worship through word and, through his word and through music is Ezra, which is short for Azuria, which means the Lord helps me. And we'll see that theme over and over again that Ezra refers back to, the Lord help me. He's referring to his name that God gave him. Ezra is also believed to be the person that brought together the great synagogue. I won't go too much into that, but basically, essentially, this great synagogue was a collection of all the smart people at the time to canonize or put together the Old Testament, Um, This is the group that went through it and made sure that really, did Moses really write this? Is this really true? Did Ezra, did I really write this? Is this really true? This is not the canonization of the New Testament that took place 393, 397, 400 years after Jesus' death. But he was part of, Ezra was so accustomed to scripture, he wanted it to be foundational to this rebuild and then finally, rebuilding the walls is Nehemiah. His name means God comforts. And what brings more comfort than a protection of a wall and a safety? Who here at night when they go to bed lock their doors, turn on their security cameras, put out their dogs, gets their alligators out, whatever it is. Who here quadruple checks their locks? Who here last night got in bed and thought, did I check the front door? No? You guys are good. I don't know where you guys live, but come on over to Roseburg Square. All right. But that's what it means. Nothing is more secure than a wall. Protection. And Nehemiah does that. And surprisingly, or shockingly, or should I say not so surprisingly or shockingly, after all of this is done, after God delivers his people yet again, the people miss the point. They rebel against God and eventually, this brand-new temple, brand-new wall gets destroyed. And, I, and up front, I must confess, the stories in Ezra and Nehemiah are wonderful. I, I already showed my hand. I like the movie Braveheart. Nehemiah reminds me of that and the great motivation and the inspiration that is shown. And yet, as I'm going through this, I just find myself thinking, no, don't do it, stop, no, and they do it. Much like what happens with me whenever I say, no, don't do it, and they do it. However, what you'll find, again, is there's a lot of, lot of questionable decisions that will take place. I already mentioned the divorce, but there's other ones that take place, especially in Nehemiah. When you, when you, and, and it's so anticlimactic, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll turn the page thinking, I wonder what's going to happen next. The next thing you know, it doesn't tell you. And you're like, come on, where's the to be continued? But it's very anticlimactic if you just take it as a story. Also, what's interesting is in the New Testament, Ezra and Nehemiah aren't even mentioned or considered. I mean, the temple is talked about, but... Ezra or Nehemiah is not quoted and for a long time, people argued if whether or not it should be in there. We'll talk about that too. And again, it's not in chronological order because if, if I open up my Bible and I go to Ezra, then I go to Nehemiah and I, in Nehemiah, I turn to Esther. But Esther actually happened somewhere during Nehemiah. So if you are someone who's very linear and very s- symmetrical, It's going to be a difficult challenge to walk through this passage if you only look at it that it's the end of the story as we know the end of the story doesn't take place until jesus comes when he says destroy this temple and i will rebuild it in three days and one thing also just talking about symmetrical is um, the first half of the story is written in hebrew the exact second half is written in Aramaic and it's almost like a uh, like a wave pattern in the way that they write it it's almost like this i know i am definitely not fluent in old testament hebrew or any hebrew or aramaic for that matter and the best way i can describe it is when you know when you were a kid like in kindergarten or first grade and you had one column here and one column here and it would say orange and then there would be a picture of an orange, and you had to draw a little line that goes like that. And then it would say red, and then there's strawberry, and you draw a little line that goes like that. You know what I'm talking about? Hopefully I'm, it makes sense. Just agree with me. And then it says, you know, yellow and the sun, but then you draw a line, and then eventually you find that, that it's actual a, a pattern. And that's, that's how most of the Old Testament is written. If we knew the original language, we would have a greater appreciation of how beautiful it is. Um, Natalie and I were talking the other day as we were talking about um, Shakespeare, and, and she mentioned, man, we, well, she didn't say it this way. This is my interpretation of how my wife talks. She talks a lot nicer than I do. But she said, essentially, man, we, we're dumb. We don't talk like that anymore. She didn't say it that way. But basically, that's what it is. And for, an, for us, if we were Israelites, if we were Hebrews, we would have appreciated the, the poetry the, that it's written. And then finally, as my long introduction goes on, um, Ezra and Nehemiah, you may be familiar with uh, some leadership principles from this. If you've ever attended a leadership conference, a Christian leadership conference, there's usually an Ezra and Nehemiah conference. If you do a podcast, if you type in Ezra and Nehemiah Leaderships, you can find a ton of podcasts on it. Um, it's really the go to on leadership outside of what Moses did. Uh, in the Old Testament, which is not wrong. There are great leadership values and insights, and I'll bring those up as we go along. Uh, But what what I find interesting for our day and age is, because on the surface, we'll see these great men as great leaders, which I would agree that they are, but really they fail. I mean, they do right in the sight of the Lord, and yet, again, spoiler alert, the temple is destroyed anyways. The walls are knocked down. The Israelites sin. They go back into captivity. Um, and, and we'll see this three steps of sin, which we'll bring out, I'll bring out in a couple of weeks. But really when we see the sin, what we'll see is we'll see that th- sin shows up in three, three steps. We see something. They see something. They, they, they desire something. And then they cheat to get it. And we'll talk about that more. But what we'll see is as hard as these guys work, as dedicated as they are, they just fall. It just doesn't work out. We'll also talk about the different cups. And we talked about that briefly at our Good Friday service. Jesus drinking the final cup, the cup of wrath. Each time the Israelites are in exile, there's a reference to a cup that must be consumed, must endure. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. As you can tell, I get a little excited. Anyways, so here's a question for us to consider as we jump into this first part. What would you do as a leader if you did everything you could do to lead people, to point them back to Christ? You, You prepared, you prayed for, you are ready for a revival, and it totally just falls flat on its face. What would you do if you were the one leading up a revival? It doesn't necessarily have to be tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Israelites, but just within your family, within your group of friends, within your small group. If you feel like God's put it on your heart to really take your life group, your small group, your Bible study group, your family to the next level, where you really start confessing sin, where you really start going through scripture, where you really make that change. What would you do if you felt like you did everything to prepare for it and it failed? How would you feel? Bad. <laughs> At least for me, what, what I tend to do is, whose fault is it? And it usually starts with me. What I should have done better. I should have done this. I could have done this. And, and depending on and where you're at as a leader and, and the way that you were brought up or just your experience, different jobs, um, there's different reasons. You, you, you go back, you can look at the circumstances, you can look, you can blame someone else. Sometimes I do that. If only I had this, if only I had that. Um, and, and to make it less spiritual, I mean, you could be on a bad baseball team And you could be a great first baseman and you just like, the pitcher's awful, shortstop can't throw to me. I mean, you can blame everybody else. But yet, what would you do if everything that you did, you prepared for a revival and it fell short? In short, that's what the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is. And as I was reading through this, I found a couple of commentaries essentially saying that the book of Ezra and Nehemiah is a revival that's gone wrong or a revival that never gets off the ground or a revival that was structured and prepared and the leadership was in place. And just to be clear, revival is essentially a vast transformation of people or a group of people in a community. So essentially, all these smart commentary writers wrote, it's a revival that went wrong. So are you inspired and encouraged? Are you ready to go? Or perhaps it's true at the heart of it, We must remain faithful and leave the results up to God. And truly, that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. Regardless of where we are on our faith journey, we must be mindful that our next step is a faithful one. And I know that's my go-to saying, but it has carried me quite a bit for over a decade. Regardless of where I'm at my faith journey, be mindful that the next step is a faithful one. So at the heart of it, we will see a major theme that hopefully will draw out as we walk through the series, that no matter how much you prepare, no matter how hard you work, you cannot change another person's heart. The change must come from God and God alone, and the willingness from that individual to follow Christ and to change. So with that, let's just quickly look at the first four verses of Ezra. So it starts off, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put the proclamation in writing and to send it throughout the kingdom. So really, if you read that, if we go through that first line, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, I think I have a picture here. It's called the Cyrus Cylinder. You may have seen it before. Anyone seen that? Corn on a cob looking thing. And actually when they found it, it wasn't broken, but someone dropped it on the way to to deliver it. Can you imagine being that guy? It's like the whole Mel Brooks. I have 15 commandments for God. He drops one. I have 10 commandments. Anyways, whatever. Anyways, it was found in 1879. 1879. So over 2,500 years after this situation in modern-day Iraq. Persia is modern-day Iraq. And on line 32, as you can clearly see here, it reads this, the God who dwelt there, I returned to the home and let them move into the internal dwelling. All their people I collected and brought them back to their homes. Cyrus, King Cyrus, would have these cylinder-looking things. All throughout his temple all throughout his home. It's almost, you know, whenever you're rebuilding a home and, and, and you knock out a wall and you find a Coca-Cola can from 19-whatever or a newspaper, it's essentially what he's doing. He had put this either in the foundation or in the walls of everything he ever did because what the Persians really liked is themselves. But what they would do is they would record and put it in the foundation so that if they were ever defeated, someone would come along and think, this guy was pretty good. So this particular one was found in 1879 in modern-day Iraq, and it essentially is quoting the opening lines from Ezra 1, 1 through 4. It's essentially saying exactly what Cyrus said which is exactly what Jeremiah said he was going to say. And even before we get there, if we go to Isaiah 44, 26 through 28, I will uh, be on the screen, Isaiah 44, 26 through 28. It says this, and this is God prophesying through Isaiah, and it reads, but I carry out this predictions of my prophets By them I say to Jerusalem, people will live here again. And the towns of Judea, you will be rebuilt. I will restore your ruins. When I speak to the rivers and say dry up, they will dry up. When I say of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will certainly do as I say he will command. Rebuild Jerusalem, he will say and restore the temple. Now why this is so fascinating and so exciting is because Isaiah wrote this down 150 years before Cyrus was even born. So most of the commentaries say that uh, uh, Jeremiah, who was there at the time when King Cyrus took over, we'll talk about how he took over from the Babylonians here in a moment, but when he took over, it is suggested and pointed through uh, Jeremiah that he would go to King Cyrus and say, hey, by the way, um, I want to show you this. This was written about you 150 years before you were born. Are you prepared to do what you... says that you're going to do? Because what had happened is Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed Jerusalem. The Babylonians, if you remember the story, you can read through Daniel... He destroyed Jerusalem, and that approach was to separate the strong from the weak. So what the Babylonians would do, different from the Persians, King Cyrus was Persian, the Babylonians would go in and they would leave all of the weak and take all of the strong. Uh, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego was not their original names. Their name was changed. So the way that the Babylonians would take over a nation, and you may find some similarities to modern day hostile takeovers is um, they would change their name, they would change their language, they would would take away their opportunity to worship as an assembly, and they would cause or allow them or make them to marry non-Jewish people. And what they would do then is they would just do this crazy scramble. So if they took over one nation here, they would take some people and put it in the nation they took over here. They would take some people. And the reason why they would do that with at least three different nations is so that way they could never agree on anything. Now, can you imagine if we got together with, I don't know, just pick another nation, two other nations, different languages, and we were told all to live together? Well, who's the boss? And what language are we going to speak? And who are we going to worship? And how are we going to get along? And who's going to build the home? And this is my style of home. You see, it's brilliant. So that's what Nebuchadnezzar did. He took over. And then, of course, at the end, when Daniel uh, uh, described to him what the finger said, that he was going to be taken over by Cyprus. So Cyprus took, uh, uh, took over, Cyrus, excuse me, took over. And the Persians did it differently. What they would do is they would say, you can do whatever you want. However you want to do it. We just want you to love us and pay taxes. Because if you love us, then we won't have to fight you again. And we've already shown you that we can take over. But you can worship whoever you want. Now, to, to be clear, this is after uh, Israel and Judea had split. So Israel was one nation, and they split after the death of, uh, from David to Solomon. And they separated. Israel was taken over Assyrian. By the Assyrians, they just totally wiped them out, pretty much, repopulated the land. But with the Persians, they decided, we're gonna let you do it. So Jeremiah was talking to Cyrus and said, Hey, this was already predicted long ago. So, with that in mind, again, it says, In the first year, Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given to Jeremiah. So, what is that prophecy that he given to Jeremiah? <clears throat> Jeremiah 25. 11 through 12, this entire land will become a desolate wasteland. Israel, her neighboring lands, will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Then after 70 years of captivity are over, I will punish the king of Babylon and his people for their sins, says the Lord, I will make the country of Babylonians a wasteland forever. Exactly what Jeremiah said. And, for, and then later on, Jeremiah 29, not 11, but Jeremiah 29, 10 and 11, I'll read this. Well, actually, sorry, let me read Jeremiah 29, 11. This perhaps is probably in your bathroom mirror or in your bedroom. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, NLT, to give you a future and a hope. Right? Anyone have that in their house, in their bathroom, in their living room, in their car? No one? Just cool. All right. Um, And and it's inspiring and this is your go-to passage probably if you're feeling like, oh man, everything's going around, but that's okay because God has a plan and a future for me. Yes, it is true. However, when Jeremiah wrote this, let's read verse 10. This is what the Lord says, you will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. Helps put things in context, right? So this was what Jeremiah had said that was going to happen. They were in captivity for 70 years by the Babylonians, for two main reasons. Number one, they worship false gods. If you worship false gods, that's a bad thing. Yes. Second is, they were not observant of the Sabbath. That's a little more scarier. The Israelites, for seven years did not, or for 70 years, did not observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a big deal. Now, if I took a survey here and said, who here is really good at taking a full day off? Who could honestly raise their hand? Yeah, me neither. Guess what? We're going to Babylon. No. Um, but that, that's the whole point, because God is really, he really means what he says. And really at the heart of not having a Sabbath is essentially not just rest, not just being with God. It's saying, God, I don't trust you enough to take care of the things in a day that I feel like I should. That's what it's saying. So Jeremiah had already prophesied that all of this would happen. And when he says this, this is now connecting to Cyrus, a pagan king, remind you. So if you want some homework, because you always want extra homework, just this week, find time to read, read Jeremiah 25. It will help explain how the uh, Israelites got there. So with all, all that in mind, uh, now that we can f- see the full context, it's coming to fruition of what happened to Jeremiah. And by the way, Jeremiah is still alive at this time. Uh, the Babylonians were really scared of him, tried to kill him a couple times. He just wouldn't die. So they shipped him off to Egypt. Same thing with uh, the Persians, but eventually uh, they brought him back because Cyrus was a completely different king. Also, while you're reading this, the NLT doesn't necessarily do a great job of this. But if you read, if you go back over the, uh, what we were reading, excuse me, Ezra, Ezra 1, 1, the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put the proclamation in writing to send it through the kingdom. Anytime you see, just a reminder, all capitals, it means Yahweh, the covenant name of God. So, a pagan ruler just beat up world-dominating Babylonians, and he's now calling God, Lord, or Yahweh, the covenant name of the Israelites. I don't even think he knows what he's doing. But that just goes back to show us that Proverbs 21 really means what it says, Proverbs 21.1, the king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. So as we are considering this, considering our current climate, considering what's going on in the world, this is a great reminder, application point number one, God is truly sovereign. God is truly in control. God can do with whatever leaders he wants to do because he is the Lord. Even so much, he can stir the heart of a pagan king to make him write on that funny looking corn on the cob thing a decree. And Ezra, in the first six chapters, it starts with going back to that drawing the line to the colors that match to make a nice pretty loop. It starts with a proclamation of Cyrus, ends with a proclamation of Cyrus. Cyrus acknowledges that Yahweh, the God of the Israelites, is in control. So this is his decree. This is what he says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of earth. He first recognizes that the Lord Yahweh, the God of heaven, he recognizes who he is. He may not believe in him. He's the reason he has the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem and Judea to rebuild the temple of the Lord, the God of Israel who lives in Jerusalem, and may your God be with you. So he's saying, after 70 years, and there is at least two generations now that has never seen the temple, that's always been under Babylonian and now Persian rule, saying, you can go ahead and worship God. You can go back home. You're allowed to do that. I'm giving you permission. I'm allowing you to go and build the temple. And may your God be with you. Verse 4, wherever the Jewish remnant is found, let there be neighbors. Contribute towards their expense by giving them silver, gold, supplies for their journey, and livestock as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So it's called a remnant because the Babylonians took over the Israelites in three waves of attack. They just came in three different ways. They attacked in three different times, took the people out um, three different times, made them prisoners. If you want to write it down, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., 586 B.C., and that's finally when Jerusalem was burnt down. And I think, and this is just my opinion as I was reading through this, going back to Nebuchadnezzar, he just did it to be mean, just to let you know I could do it. He came in the first time and took a whole bunch of people and essentially said, I'll be back. How terrifying is that? Someone comes and robs your home and says, I'll come back. Oh, okay. Okay. Then he comes back, you know, whatever, 13 years later, I'm back, take more stuff back. And also what we'll see is, since God is very symmetrical, is that the remnant of God's people comes back in three different waves, and almost the same exact number of people that were taken the first time. And this... As he says, uh, the remnant is found, their neighbors contributing towards their expense, this is exactly what happened in the story of Exodus a 1,000 years before this. Do you remember when, whenever Moses uh, sent the last plague, the 10 plague, and he told all the people, go to your neighbors and get what, did they, what to get? Go get silver and gold, supplies for the journey, their livestock, and the neighbors willingly gave it to them. They said, here you go, take it. It's the second Exodus. And just as Zerubbabel and Ezra is like the, first, is the second Moses, what we'll see is Nehemiah is the second Joshua. But, or Aaron, excuse me, but we'll, we'll get there. So now they're, now they're allowed to. Now they're allowed to return. And, and here, if, if you want to highlight in your Bible or just remember it, put a little note, it also says supplies for the journey, livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So essentially, everybody who wasn't Jewish said, oh, you're going to go home? Well, let me give you silver and gold. Let me give you animals. Let me set you up. And also, here's some money. Here's a voluntary offering to rebuild your temple. We will see here in a couple of weeks that this is what they should have done, but we'll see what they do with it. So really, this, this opening uh, introduction to this Ezra-Nehemiah series is really from Proverbs 21, and I already read it, verse one. The king's heart is like a stream of water directed by the Lord. He guides it wherever he pleases. God is in control. And he can use our greatest adversaries for our good. And to be honest, the reason why I felt led to the last several months Ago to um, talk on, teach on Ezra and Nehemiah is is during Acts. Whenever I thought, all right, I'm going to do the one and others, but I also knowing in the back of my mind and praying through. Eventually, we are going to go into a new building. <laughs> Eventually, and uh, and typically, not only is Ezra and Nehemiah used to teach good leadership skills and. And all of that. It also is the classic, or traditionally used, to help with like a fundraiser, to start a new uh, ministry, to start a new building project, to to do all that. Like we're gonna rebuild. Go to your neighbors and get their dogs and cats. I'm just exaggerating, but um, but really, as 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 I was reading through this the last couple of weeks, preparing for it. And although there's great leadership and it's great to do campaign funding or whatever you want to call it, I believe at the very heart of Ezra and Nehemiah is to remind us that it is not about a building. It's not about a ministry. It's not about Renew. It's not about Modesto. It's not about the life groups or the Bible study. It is at the heart of it a reminder that our heart must belong to the Lord. I've been through a couple of building projects uh, throughout my ministry career, and um, good ones, bad ones, and different ones, and this is a really good one. This is a great one. This has been one of the most smoothest one, probably because I had nothing to do with it, and I've been on jury duty. <laughs> All right, but uh, but at the end of such a, a building project in particular, people are exhausted And I don't want to play anymore. And I'm not saying that to all of you who've contributed your time. I appreciate that very much. I can't thank you enough all the time you volunteered and for all of that. But really, at the heart of it, the reason why we're going to a building is so that way. It's a place for us to come to worship, but worship must begin in our hearts. Again, as we prepare to move in the next couple of weeks, my caution, my warning, my prayer is that the building will only provide an opportunity for us to be on mission for what God has called us to do. To love him, to love our neighbor. And again, I'm not trying to be anti-building. I I went over this a couple times and I thought, man, you, I won't say what I said, but get over yourself, Jackson. But um, at the heart of it, God wants us to love him and love the loss and love our neighbors. That's why when Jesus prays in the garden, and he tells his disciples, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love one another. And that's hopefully what this is. So it, my, my fancy plan was to start this series whenever we got into the building, but I was running out of one another's. And uh, I just thought, we'll just begin with this great overview. So really, at the heart of it, what we will see, hopefully we are not like the Israelites, but we are. Uh, but hopefully at the heart of it we will see that God has blessed us with a great building that we should appreciate and be thankful just like he blessed us with this place just like he's blessed us with, when covid hit and other people weren't able to meet we were able to meet and not cuz we're great because God's great but yet when we get over that over to the new building our mission shouldn't change is to love God, love other people and to reach the loss. so that's our challenge as we consider over the next couple months uh, what Ezra and Nehemiah um, means to us, it means that we must go back to the start of God. Make, let our next step be an obedient one. Let's pray. God, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for being a great, big God. Lord, it is amazing, and still, I don't think I fully comprehend the fact that you took a Persian pagan king. And used him to begin the next wave of your covenant, Lord. Um, there's so many applications in that, Lord, as we uh, can struggle with our own government, our local government, our state government, our, just our government at large, the world, Lord, but yet we know you're in control, as we read multiple times from Proverbs. You can use any of the kings or any of the leaders. to to do your will. Lord, but at the heart of it, your desire to do all that is to help us come in community uh, with you, to restore a relationship back to you. You don't want us to go to a place just for the place, but you want us to come back to you. So Lord, as we go through this series of Ezra and Nehemiah, let us be mindful the good things and the leadership and the bad things and help us not make those mistakes and when we do and if we do and however we do let us be quick to own it admit it confess our sins and repent of it Lord Lord we're so excited of what you have in store for us um, just as this small community of believers called Renew and uh, just for your kingdom we're just one small little corner of what you're doing and thank you for that opportunity Lord let us uh, be eagerly excited for all that you have in store, Lord, and we are just thankful that you have made a way when there was no way to come back to you. So, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to worship you through song, a few more songs, just we just want to praise you and thank you that you are totally in control. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.